0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello, and welcome again to Extra with me, Geraldine Dug, here on RN. We're going to talk about section 230 or 230. I'm not quite sure how it'll be phrased. Not widely known as an aspect of US law, but it's a law that covers social media companies and web publishers' liability for content published on their sites. And there's a challenge underway to that law, and there are people who believe it could fundamentally change the way we use the internet. And also, newly emerging etiquette about sharing. Bring it all out into the open. Share, well... There's people saying, no, this has gone too far and um, there's uh, some new, new guidelines might need to be brought into play. So we'll talk about that as well. But first to some very contemporary dilemmas now and to a new book called Time to Think which thoroughly investigates the rise and fall of the UK's flagship gender service for children. The Gender Identity Development Service, which is based at the respected Tavistock Clinic in North London, was initially set up to provide, for the most part, talking therapies to young people who were questioning their gender identity. But in the last decade, it's referred more than a thousand children, some as young as nine years old, for medication to block their puberty. Well, to walk us through the findings of three years' research charting this story, I'm pleased to welcome Hannah Barnes, a journalist with the BBC's Newsnight program and author of Time to Think, the inside story of the collapse of the Tavistock's gender service for children. Welcome to Saturday Extra.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Tell us why you decided to write this book, please.
2: Well, I had, as you say, I'd started this investigation at BBC Newsnight with my colleague Deborah Cohen, and we did sort of four films, four quite lengthy films, sort of 12 and a half minute type things, um, and written a series of articles and a radio documentary. But it got to the point where I just knew too much, and I felt that... There had to be a written, definitive record of what had taken place. And I think here in the UK, and I imagine the same is true there in Australia, you know, there's, if you're the average, partly engaged layperson, you might think that there's no disagreement amongst clinicians about how to best care for this group of often vulnerable and distressed young people. And where there is disagreement that that might be motivated by transphobia, but but really nothing could be further from the truth. And I think, you know, that they really, where there is a really weak evidence base underpinning a treatment and a rapid shift in both the numbers and the type of young people presenting to these gender clinics, it's important that the debate if you like comes out of those clinics and into society and that's not a debate I have to stress about trans people or the right to transition like we have never questioned that and I certainly never questioned that in the book and you know I've spoken to people who are really happy with the service they received at JIDS and they're now you know living as happy trans adults but some things have gone wrong and some people have been harmed as well so you know it's not just about the trans community it's about children. <sighs>
1: and by the sound of it, practices too. Like your book centres around this uh, gender identity service at the Tavistock. Mm. Um, it was set up in 1989. Who runs it?
2: So, well, to start with, it was, it was, it was opened by a child and adolescent psychiatrist called Domenico De Dicelli. Um, and it was very, very tiny in the early years and actually was a different a hospital in London, but um, it, it sort of gradually grew, and then in the 2010s, uh, it was it was run out of the Tavistock and Portman Trust, um, and its head from 2009 has been a, a lady called Polly Carmichael. But you know, it's part um, the way our healthcare system is structured here. We have a, a, a number of hospital trusts, which are all part of our central National Health Service. So it's it's part of the National Health Service. Um, and that, I think, has what's surprised people is that, uh, you know, a review of this whole area of healthcare care is, is, is underway at the moment. But in its interim findings, uh, the woman who's undertaken it, a very respected paediatrician called Dr Hilary Cass, has said that this has not been subject to the level of oversight that we would expect when innovative treatments are...
1: This is the gender service. Yeah,
2: exactly, are are given to children. Um, There just hasn't been the level of scrutiny that one would expect.
1: Give us a bit of context. As you say, in 2007, this this small group, uh, clinic, was seeing about 50 children a year. Mm. And then by 2019, it was getting thousands of referrals every year. I mean, what happened? Why the increase? Do, Do we know yet?
2: I think that's the $64 million question. Um, there are lots of answers to that. I think it's really difficult to pin it on one thing. You know, the, the service itself has said, you know, perhaps it's due to increased acceptance of trans people and it being easier to 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 come out, as it were. Um, and I think I have spoken to some young people for whom that, that might be the case. But I really don't think that explains the really rapid increase. Um, clinicians that have worked in the service have, have put forward a number of hypotheses, if you like. And, and certainly this chimes with some of the young people I've spoken to as well. You know, the influence of friendships and sort of social influences. Um, many young people were very unhappy about being gay and they'd been bullied for, for, for being in same-sex relationships or, or, or being attracted to, to other people. Uh, members of their own sex and and didn't like that and 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 sometimes found it easier to identify as trans and i know that's that's really sort of a quite difficult thing to comprehend but but when i heard that story over and over again um i think for for the girls in particular i mean it's quite hard being a teenage girl puberty can be quite distressing and particularly if you're not you know uber feminine in in the world that we live in now it's really it can be difficult and I think for 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 many young people some of whom told me that they were having really quite severe mental health problems just prior to their trans identification and um it was it was a way of understanding their unhappiness and that's not to say that obviously um some people you know obviously some people identify as trans and and they are trans and, and will be as adults so I think it's just a whole multitude of things really not not one thing that explains this this
1: rapid increase well you certainly do lay it out carefully I mean there was a shift this important shift in who was being referred yeah. with because uh, it, it was more bo- young boys wasn't it that's right and then the largest group are now registered as females exactly presenting for treatment in their teens between 12 and 14.
2: Mm-hmm. Exactly absolutely so you had this absolute rise in the, in the overall number of referrals but as you say a complete shift in the demographics if you like of the young people being referred so um, the existing albeit limited evidence base tends to apply to largely birth registered males boys who have had their gender incongruence since, since childhood and it's persisted whereas what gender clinics across the world have seen is a shift from those boys with lifelong gender incongruence to a preponderance of girls whose gender distress has only begun after the onset of puberty and adolescence. And often these, these teenage girls have many other difficulties that they're contending with as well. Um, depression, anxiety, perhaps eating disorders. Uh, and here in the UK, certainly some of them had, had suffered quite traumatic backgrounds as well. Um, and I think what, the, and I think this is why the concern really began because a pretty weak evidence base to start with was then being applied to a completely different group of people for whom we really had no evidence that the medical pathway worked. And really, these clinicians just said, "Don't we need to be a bit more cautious?"
1: Uh, autism also featured quite a bit, didn't
2: it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, the the only data we have from that is from uh, a paper that the Gender Identity Development Service published back in 2018. And they, uh, they said that 35% of the young people they were seeing uh, exhibited moderate to severe autistic traits. So that's not quite an autism diagnosis, but it was on another measure that they were using. And it's certainly something that you know uh, the dozens of clinicians i've spoken to have said uh, i mean and that's that is incredibly high if you compare that to the population level uh, certainly here in, in in the uk it's around two percent so again it just prompted this question do we need to think a bit more here is something else going on not it's not possible for an autistic person to be trans of course of course they can be but do we need to slow down a bit
1: you also say i think that some people um wanted to um transition to other ethnicities too as well as um different gender which suggests just a very troubled people doesn't it
2: yeah exactly exactly and and those cases were very rare i don't i don't want to imply that that there were many but but yes in in, in they there were a few of those cases and it's striking that I'm told by, by clinicians who have gone on the record, used their names, that even in those cases where a young person not only identified as another gender but as another race or another ethnicity, those things would be treated separately and not as a you know. So, so that the the gender transition could continue, um, not taking into account that as you say, perhaps this person is actually might be quite unwell if if they're thinking that they're also another race.
1: My guess is Hannah Barnes, and she's written this very thought-provoking book called Time to Think, the inside story of the collapse of the Tavistock's gender service for children. Now, as I said, some were very young children, um, and initially the clinic was providing talking, talk therapy, but this changed, didn't it? And this is a very important transition, is it not?
2: Yeah, it was so. It's important. So it did always well for a very long time. It did provide medical treatments, um, what we what we know colloquially as puberty blockers, but only to young people who were sixteen. Um, so you you had pretty much gone through puberty by then. So so they did that for very many years, um, but in twenty eleven, um, under sort of pressure from. Well, from from trans groups, from endocrinologists, from from others working in in this field of, of gender healthcare, they embarked on a on a research study, uh, which was the right thing to do because they said, look, we've we, we've got this group of small number of really really distressed young people, and there's this treatment, puberty blockers, that we think might help. Um, you know, there's some studies coming out of the Netherlands, and they look really persuasive, but. The, the data aren't conclusive, and and you know the, there isn't very much of it. So so we need to do a research study to see whether you know these these promising findings are are borne out. And so that's what they did, which was the right thing to do, albeit not a terribly robust study design. But then extraordinarily, rather than wait for any data or any meaningful data to come back from that study, they simply rolled out the early blocking of puberty. Uh, in 2014, as as sort of a, a matter of course, and uh, the the study which was small, which was 44 young people aged 12 to 15. Uh, then what what Jids did was they removed the lower age limit altogether. So providing a young person had started puberty, something called Tanner stage two, which is very early stages of puberty, um, they could potentially be eligible to be referred for puberty blockers, uh, and and within you know a couple of years there were 200 or so referred and uh, as you said earlier on well over a thousand have been referred um i mean this is the striking thing we don't actually have the data it's not been in the public domain but i would from what is in the public domain i think it's around 1800 possibly a few more um under 18s but yes to roll something out without any evidence base was was a, a remarkable decision really and for, the, and for the NHS to allow them to do it was remarkable.
1: Did you come to any other conclusions about, you know, just the sheer pressure on the system or, I mean, was, dare I ask, was money being made from this?
2: Um, not in the way that some have hinted, you know, like there's no, people talk about big pharma and stuff. I found absolutely you know, no evidence of that, but but I think that's unique to our health system. And the the Tavistock Trust itself, um, the proportion of income that that gender services brought into the trust grew quite rapidly um, um, over time from about 2015 onwards. Now, that's not to say that there was any malice or ill intent involved, but 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 many clinicians brought up the fact that the trust was in a Quite precarious financial position anyway, and to lose the income that 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 Jid's brought in might have been very very difficult. And you know that came from people who spoke very favourably of the service itself, as well as those who were critical. So there's there's a sense that it it may have allowed the leadership to be blinkered, was the word that that one used. But but I don't want to imply that it was you know sort of ruthless intent or anything like that. But in terms of pressure, I mean yeah, I mean. the the, the failings of of JIDS are not solely its fault. I mean, the problem in many cases was, well, they were overwhelmed by the numbers completely. But what we found and what the independent review of uh, care provided to to gender distressed children has has found so far here in, in, in the UK is that in so many cases, the other difficulties that these young people were experiencing were simply overlooked. Now, JIDS would say that they weren't they weren't commissioned to to, to to provide holistic treatment to these young people. They were a gender service and they were there to deal with the gender difficulties. And it was for other, you know, more localised mental health services for young people to deal with the other stuff. But the problem was that simply didn't happen. And potentially many young people got a treatment that they, they wouldn't benefit from and, and perhaps needed something else. And, you know, have been let down by the adults that were meant to help them.
1: Yes, would seem so. I mean, it is being shut this year. That's the plan. I think it's got 7,500 waiting. <laughs> what finally led to people standing up and and taking notice?
2: Well, that's disputed here. Um, as you can imagine, it's a very contentious area of, um, of debate. Um, but, I mean, really... S- several things i mean we had they they were inspected by our healthcare regulator and, and found to be inadequate um both in terms of leadership and, and other factors and, and it pointed to you know a lack of record keeping, um, informed consent not being taken, um, risk not being adequately managed, no proper record of how clinical decisions are made. It was a really damning report. And we've also had, as I've, I've mentioned a few times, sorry to sound like a broken record, this, this independent review, which called for a fundamentally different model of care. And it's really those two things. And, and I, I would say that our reporting at Newsnight sort of influenced both of those quite quite heavily that that have made the national health service say that we need a fundamentally different approach here we need more services because it's clear that one clinic cannot serve all of england and wales it's crazy so we need more we need them closer to where these young people live we need to provide more than one treatment pathway it cannot be that you know while medical transition will work for some it will not work for all and just as there are different ways kind of into young people's gender-related distress. There's got to be different ways out of it as well. So these new services are going to be more holistic. There's going to be much more mental health support. Um, there's going to be specialists in autism and neurodiversity and in safeguarding. So the idea is, you know, one, one national service cannot work, but, but also the model it's used has failed so it's it's kind of a combination of things. Um but, as you say, more than seven and a half thousand young people waiting, waiting for years with no help whatsoever. it's it's not a great situation by by anyone's judgment.
1: Look, when you decided to write this book, you initially, I understand, had some difficulties finding a publisher. Can you tell us about that, please?
2: So I wrote a very detailed book proposal it's about seventeen words um and it set out very clearly you know what what the book would be like and what it wouldn't be like you know it 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 was an evidence-based robust fair um approach just just as just as i'd done at the bbc um you know not not questioning trans people and it was really striking because it was sent to 22 publishers um none of whom gave a negative response at all so 12 responded and all were very positive and said, this is a very important story. Um, you've got to tell it, but essentially not with us. Um, and, a, a, you know, a variety of reasons were given. And 10 didn't reply at all, which my, my agent tells me is very, very strange. Um, so it was pretty demoralising. Um, and then the 23rd Swift Press, thankfully, did agree to take it on. And, um, you know, here we are. But, um, yeah, it was a it's, – it's strange – Sort of a lack of bravery in the in the publishing industry, for sure. It was it was shocking.
1: And I mean, what are other countries doing? Because this has really reverberated, hasn't it, around the world? What mm. What are some other key countries oh, yeah, doing?
2: absolutely. Well, both Sweden and Finland um, have sort of rode back a bit again. So those physical interventions are available, but but are, but with far more caution. And it's talking therapies that that are the first line of treatment if you like so it, it, it's it, it, and and you know extensive talking therapy and again sort of going back to the original principles that, that young people have to be sort of quite psychologically stable before you know commencing physical treatment France have also issued a, a note of caution over this and it's really interesting that in the three countries that have actually undertaken a systematic review of the evidence basis Sweden Finland and, and here in England um, they have all found it to be wanting and 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 as a result have sort of started to proceed on a more cautious footing because we really I think what's happened in this area of healthcare, as so many clinicians have told me is that the word gender has kind of muddied the waters and they've proceeded on a basis where you wouldn't usually in medicine. The evidence base has, has remained quite quite weak. And even WPATH, the World Professional Association for Transgender Healthcare, which is, is generally the more you know, affirmative approach the, to, to, fit to physical transition for, for young people, even they totally accept that the existing studies, that the, the best data we have are these two studies from the Netherlands and actually they apply to a rather different group of young people to the majority being seen by gender clinics across the world now. So, you know, I think I think there is starting to be a shift. There's a big article published overnight in the British in the uh, British Medical Journal, the, um, the BMJ, um, precisely talking about this. That you know, clinical disagreement over how best to care for this very diverse, often distressed young people is actually increasing. Disagreement is increasing um, because we're starting to see that it it, it hasn't benefited some. So, so, you know, perhaps there need to be changes in approach.
1: Very interesting. Thank you so much for joining us and uh, for putting so much effort into your work. Thank you very much, Hannah Barnes.
2: It's been a pleasure. Thank you.
1: And Hannah's an investigative journalist with the BBC and the author of Time to Think, the inside story of the collapse of the Tavistock's gender service for children. It's published by Swift press. Uh, In Australia, prepubescent children with gender dysphoria are treated with talking therapies. Once the child enters puberty, uh, puberty blockers may be part of their treatment. Gender reassignment surgery is generally only undertaken in adults. And if you'd like to go to the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne, they have some more information on their website. And if you or your child would like more information, Kids Helpline can be reached on 1800 55 1800. You can also access more information from the group Transcend, which can be found at transcend.org.au. Well, up next, a bit of a change of pace to the internet free speech law that's before the US Supreme Court right now. Yes, this week, two lawsuits got underway in the US Supreme Court that have the potential to completely upend the way we use the internet. The two cases hinge on 26 words of US telecommunications law called Section 230 of the 1996 Communications Decency Act. And that shields companies from liability for material posted on their platforms while also giving them the ability to take down content if they choose. The law's created a lot of good things, allowing us to express ourselves online and to leave reviews and complain about things. But the lack of liability has also allowed hate speech, misinformation and abuse to circulate online. That's the strong argument. And crucially, as we'll hear, some of this content also ends up being recommended to users by algorithms. By their own admission, the Supreme Court judges aren't experts in this field. I mean, we're a court. We really don't know about these things. We, you know, these are not like the nine greatest experts on the internet. <laughs> That was Eleanor Kagan, an Associate Justice. So for an explainer on all of this, let's hear now from Jess, Jeff Kossoff. He's an Associate Professor of Cybersecurity Law in the United States Naval Academy's Cyber Science Department. He's the author of The 26 Words That Created the Internet and widely considered one of the preeminent Section 230 experts out there. Welcome to the program.
0: Thanks so much for having me.
1: Do you say 230 or 230, just so I get the lingo right? 230, typically. Good. Excellent. Now, some background, if you would, please. What does this these crucial 26 words, what do they do to shield social media companies or any website owners that host user-generated content?
0: So what they basically boil down to is that the responsibility, the legal responsibility, for content is on the person or company who posted or created it and not on the platform where it was posted. So if you were to go onto Facebook and defame me, I would be able to sue you, but I would not be able to sue Facebook because of Section 230.
1: And why was this law first introduced in 1996, a time when the internet was a very different beast?
0: Yeah, well, there were... um, some early services, uh, Prodigy, CompuServe, America Online, that had bulletin boards and chat rooms. And there, there started to be some defamatory content that led to some lawsuits. And the, the common law rule under the First Amendment, essentially what the courts were saying is that if you did not do any moderation at all, if you just basically took a completely hands-off approach as an online platform, you could actually get a good amount of protection under the common law. But if you started to engage in moderation, so if you took some things down because you thought it violated your user standards, then you would be responsible for everything that you left up. So what this did is it created a big disincentive to moderation for platforms. It basically said if you make your platform like the Wild West, you'll actually get much more protection in court So what Section 230 aimed to do was to say, you know, we want to leave it up to the platforms to set their own policies and procedures, and they won't face liability. So it took away that disincentive. Uh, That was the main reason. The other reason was because Congress recognized that they wanted to give these new websites and online services the breathing room to be able to grow and develop into businesses that are centred around user content, which in fact they have.
1: It's so interesting to hear this sort of effort at regulation, which has <laughs> had some unintended consequences. That's, I suppose, your argument or the argument that's being made. Now, the Supreme Court heard two cases this week, Gonzalez versus Google and Twitter versus Tamne. Could you explain who the plaintiffs are and what they claim?
0: Sure. So the plaintiffs in both cases are the family members of victims of ISIS attacks. And what they claim, uh, I'll start starting with the Gonzalez case, uh, it's a lawsuit against Google, but it's really based on YouTube, which Google owns. And what the argument is, is that Because because YouTube not only presents ISIS videos, but that it algorithmically targets ISIS videos at people who might have a predisposition to want to see that content, that Section 230 shouldn't apply because it's not – there. what the plaintiffs are trying to do is not hold – YouTube and Google liable just for the videos, but for the act of targeting the videos at, uh, at individuals. And uh, the lower court had dismissed the case under Section 230, and what the plaintiffs in that case are trying to do is to say – This is not a Section 230 case because we're not, because we're actually looking at the act of the platform. And the second case against Twitter actually is not a Section 230 case because the court didn't get to that issue. That's basically looking at whether there actually is a claim against Twitter for its ISIS content under the Anti Terrorism Act, which is a statute that allows the victims of terrorism to bring a lawsuit against those who have provided substantial assistance to terrorist groups.
1: So the algorithm's on trial a bit, isn't it?
0: It is, yes. And the the justices uh, during oral arguments in the Google case, they really were struggling because they recognized that the internet runs on algorithms. You can't have today's internet without algorithms, but they wanted to figure out if there's some sort of way to have a neutral algorithm. And I I think they were really running into a lot of roadblocks there because algorithms by their very nature are not neutral. They will indicate a preference over some content over others. And the issue is how much breathing space do we want to give the platforms
1: Wow, well, how very interesting. Um, and uh, just for clarification, this has been elevated so the Supreme Court has had to accept this. I, I presume that works like our High Court does here. So, you know, they, they deem this to be of sufficient weight to accept this uh, very important case.
0: Absolutely. The Supreme Court receives uh, about 7,000 requests every year to hear hear lower court cases, and it only grants about 60 or 70 of them. Mm. So uh, this is the first time the court has ever taken a Section 230 case, so it had to have deemed it quite important to put it on the docket.
1: Now, this seems to be one of those rare moments of unity uh, in US politics, I understand, where both sides want reform, but for different reasons. What's the general reason among Republicans for wanting to amend Section 230? I mean, Donald Trump famously wanted to throw the law out altogether, didn't he?
0: Yeah. So, and I'm speaking on my own behalf, not on behalf of the U.S. government. I'll say that the the political parties have very different reasons. So the Republican general line is that the platforms uh, are too biased in their moderation, that they tend to overblock conservative content and they don't block uh, liberal content nearly as much. So they want to somehow use Section 230 as a lever to force the platforms to be more neutral and be more hands-off, at least on the content that they're creating. And the Democrats and the liberals tend to have the exact opposite concern. They believe the platforms are not moderating nearly enough. And they say, you know, there's a lot of really bad stuff on the internet, and we want to somehow use Section 230 to uh, provide an incentive for the platforms to block more of this content, misinformation, hate speech, those sorts of things. Uh, But the real challenge here is that so much of that, things like hate speech and a great deal of misinformation, are protected under the US Constitution by the First Amendment. So with or without Section 230, the government can't suddenly start banning hate speech and misinformation.
1: Um, The Supreme Court bench, as we know, is skewed conservative at the moment. Could that have an influence on which course of action they decide on, in your view?
0: This might be one of the rare times when I don't think the partisan divide of the Supreme Court will have much of an impact because – the justices, even within the partisan divide, the justices tend to have very different philosophies on the internet, and uh, we we don't necessarily know because uh, other other than what they said in oral arguments, most of the justices have never written or talked about Section two hundred and thirty before. But you have some justices like uh, Justice Kagan, who's a liberal, and Justice Kavanaugh, who's really a traditional conservative, who. Um, expressed some some reluctance for the Supreme Court to get too involved in internet policy. Uh, Justice Kagan suggested this might be something Congress is better suited for. But uh, Justice Jackson, on the other hand, who's also a liberal, um, she seemed fairly e- eager to get more involved in narrowing Section 230. And she had some concerns about how broadly it's been applied. So, Uh, I always hesitate to predict how the justices will rule because I'm usually always wrong. But um, (laughs) I I think that um, there's a very good chance that you're not going to see the traditional split that we've seen on so many other hot button issues.
1: I mean, there are three possible scenarios that could play out here, I'm advised. Either the Supreme Court declines to make any changes to Section 230 and the status quo remains, or they decide there needs to be an amendment, or they decide to support the plaintiff claim and section off algorithmic recommendations from Section 230. Maybe you could talk us through what would happen in each of these scenarios, Because it is really, you know, what an extraordinary brew awaits us.
0: Yeah, so Justice Amy Coney Barrett, she suggested that if in that second case, the Twitter case I talked about, if the court... Decides, you know, there's just not a claim against social media platforms under the Anti-Terrorism Act. Then there's a chance that the Supreme Court could say, "Well, because of that, we don't even have to address Section 230." Uh, so there, that would probably be the best case scenario for the tech companies. Uh, the Supreme Court wouldn't be able to amend Section 230. That's really a job for Congress. Uh, so, so there, the most the Supreme Court can do is decide how to interpret Section 230. And I think you're right. I think that uh, one possible way that they could interpret it is to say that algorithmic recommendations or targeted algorithms are not covered by Section 230. Um, The problem, and I think a lot of the justices struggled in more than two and a half hours of oral argument on Tuesday, is figuring out where do you draw the line? Because... They also recognize that there's a lot of recommendations and targeting that might be necessary. Um, you think about a service like TikTok. Uh, TikTok would not work without targeting mm-hmm. uh, because you wouldn't just sign on to the service and see one of any randomly chosen video that's out there. They, they know the types of videos that you're interested in. And I think there's a recognition that the general public also doesn't want to go back to the day of reverse chronological feeds on social media that we've gotten used to. That so, but but at the same time, the justices recognize that if a platform is specifically targeting harmful content at someone with a particular predilection, that's a problem also.
1: Gosh, how so do you define that though?
0: <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly. And and how do you define it? Section 230's been on the books for more than 27 years, So, and this is the first case that's ever been heard, so how would you define it in an enduring way that would be useful 27 years from now, when the technology will be completely different? And that's the real challenge that they're facing
1: your view, if you wouldn't mind, as a wrap-up uh, on this, I mean, I I think I know where you're going to come down, but are you in favour of one course or other? Um, and Because there's a precedent, a very important precedent going to be set here, isn't it? I presume, you know, implications for Australia and, and other nations as well.
0: Absolutely. And I, I think I tend to come down where Justice Kagan does, which is, that this is a really important issue, but ultimately it's an issue that our elected officials have to deal with in Congress, and they have to make a really tough policy choice. And this is something that I think is beyond the scope of the court's duties. So I I think that that would be my preference, is for Congress to have a really thoughtful debate on this. Uh, Easier said than done. But um, I, 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 I think that would be the best course of action.
1: Well, thank you very much indeed for bringing us up to date on that. I'm sure we'll all take much more notice uh, uh, as we as we hear these these discussions. Uh, Jeff Kosoff, thank you for your time. Thanks so much, Jeff Kosoff, an associate professor of cybersecurity law, and author of the 26 words that created the internet. <laughs> Very interesting. Well, staying with social media platforms and the perceived return of social boundaries in a world of oversharing.
2: And when one has learned to walk like a gentleman, one must always remember to talk like one.
1: You know, some people you walk up to, oh, g'day mate, how you going? And others you walk up to, well, you know, I used to say, pleased to meet you. But that's not the done thing. Now you're supposed to say, how do you do?
2: Having mastered the art of good conversation, the done thing these days is to hold a good dinner party. Remember cutting edges are always turned. To
1: the left hand side.
2: Yes, turned
3: inwards or turned, yes. Left, or in, in to the left.
1: Oh, the napkin, yes. Napkin. It should napkin. always be called a napkin, not a serviette. No. That was from 1987, believe it or not. Some young men trying to, quote, better themselves to improve their manners and to learn how to mix in different circles. It's surprising, perhaps, that classes like this continued as late as the 80s, especially for men, when I think it's fair to say women had mostly given up that... Finishing school stuff. Perhaps that lovely clip from our archives is really very amusing, isn't It's more a comment on class in Australia than anything else. But you heard there a reference to the art of good conversation. And in our current world of oversharing, which is really what we've been just talking about uh, with Professor Kossoff, it would seem there's an eagerness to reinstate some boundaries or personal discipline When we communicate, that's according to the American writer, Michael Waters, who's been reflecting on whether we know too much about those around us. Too much information, TMI, as they say. He thinks there's a bit of a backlash against oversharing. Hello there, Michael.
3: Thank you so much. So great to talk to you.
1: And I will share that you're the author of a recent piece which certainly got us in in The Atlantic called The Decline of Etiquette and the Rise of Boundaries. Can you explain what you think is happening socially?
3: I mean, what interested me in this piece is essentially this phenomenon that I've been witnessing and I think a lot of people have been witnessing, especially on social media, which is people sort of finding new ways to share less Like, especially in the early days of social media, there is this tension and this sort of push inherent in the platforms to get us to open up and to talk as much about ourselves as possible. And, you know, that's good for the business of these companies as well, sort of not incidentally. But now you're seeing, not only in the platforms themselves, you're seeing these um, features like Twitter Circle or Instagram Close Friends, where you limit actually who you share to, but you also see like a lot of people talking about and coining new phrases like on TikTok, for instance, um, this phrase trauma dumping has become really popular to talk about essentially people who are sort of, some people feel that they're sharing two emotional stories out of context or in the wrong space. And so essentially like what I've witnessed is the conversation turning a little bit to people trying to talk about like how you navigate boundaries on especially the internet and this thing in which you know, we all are suddenly given these big microphones. um, Mm. And I think it's a really interesting cultural moment that we're living in.
1: Very interesting indeed. Um, If we look back at more socially rigid eras, like the 1950s dinner party is an example that you use for where certain things could not be discussed. And thankfully, a lot of those conversational taboos have fallen away because they do seem rather dated. But you really are, (laughs) I mean, there's a gorgeous story, for instance, that I did laugh at, where, in fact, uh, in the French Navy in the 1920s, you say enlistees would place small objects like a miniature boat hook or a tiny ladder on the dinner table to warn people they are on the verge of a conversational faux pas. <laughs> These are obviously very hierarchical societies.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And there was this concern for so long. I mean, you see sort of the rise of etiquette manuals dating back to even the 1600s across Europe. Um, there was this really long-term concern around etiquette and conversations. And that often meant, you know, like you said, it was often um, like enforced via class and, and sort of other power structures. And it also often meant limits on what would be allowed to share. And when you look at some of these old etiquette manuals, it is probably funny to us in our modern sensibilities, what people would take offense at. Um, just the question of where have you been was considered impolite in certain of these older, um, early modern etiquette manuals. And there was always this concern with how do you enforce conversation and sort of rules of conversation to make people as comfortable as possible. And that often meant make sure people don't share too much. And sort of that continued in different ways. It obviously sort of changed exactly the rules of what was permitted to share, but that continued, you know, into the 1950s. Like you mentioned um, in the piece I talked about this American sort of this social engineering video that essentially instructed people how they should behave at a nightly meal for a typical white American nuclear family, at least as as it was constructed then. And basically, I mean, it was saying like, don't say anything uncomfortable, you know, don't ask about money, don't share too much about yourself. Certainly don't talk about sex. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, And so I think that like, what you start to see, especially in the latter half of the 20th century, is you start to see increasingly people push against that. Um, And that came from a lot of different corners and it was a very complicated process, but you see more open conversations about sex, you see more open conversations about mental health. Um, And these were really important trends that I think have like, in general, cemented this idea to us that we're becoming a more open society and that we permit more kinds of sharing, at least in theory, than we did, you know, 50 years ago. Yes. Um, And
1: and do you think this is only happening in social media, Michael, or in face-to-face interactions or both or what?
3: Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both, but I do think social media is an interesting lens through which to analyze this because I think that What is happening on social media right now is just this kind of context collapse that I think is a little bit specific to the internet, which is that we used to have these very clear ideas of sort of who we were sharing with. And we would know, you know, in the workplace, necessarily, um, you might say something different than you would say to a group of friends. Like, you might not talk about certain things to your boss that you talk about to a close friend. And on the internet, what you see is this, again, this collapse of context around exactly who you're talking to at a given moment. And we all have these imagine audiences that are gonna see our posts on Facebook or Twitter, on TikTok. But it's actually, you know, sort of a much larger group of people. And it's often people we don't imagine will be consuming our content, which sort of leads to this feeling that there is oversharing. I do also think there's a an offline component to it, even when you look at the workplace. And I do think a lot of that, for instance, comes out of These ideas about, you know, like bringing your whole self to work, Mm. for instance, which is a very honorable idea about, you know, like making sure that people are comfortable and are able to be, you know, as much of themselves as they want to be, at least in theory. But I do think other people experience it as they're being sort of pushed to share more than they want to in a workplace when, you know, really what they want to do is they want to clock out at the end of the day and not think about it.
1: Quite. Uh, No, I I agree. I mean, do you think there's an increasing demand for more private versions of social media? Uh, Just leave the workplace aside for a moment. I'll try to come back to it. Do you detect that there's something quite significant moving or not?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that people are becoming more aware of sort of how algorithms work and how what they post can be taken into new context and seen by new people. And I do think that's also why you see on existing social sites like Instagram or Twitter, you see these new tools that let you pre-select which of your followers or which of your friends you want to be able to see your posts. But I also think all of this is actually kind of normal in the larger context of history, especially when it comes to technology. To some extent, there has always been adjustment periods whenever there are new communication technologies that are invented. Um, One example that I really liked for instance, when postcards were first invented um, in the middle of the 19th century, that also created a kind of moral panic around sharing and oversharing because people who had been used to writing these very long, you know, multi-page confessional letters to each other, some people began to panic that, you know, postcards, which are just these, like, quick messages that you could dash off, would lead to people sharing sort of mundane thoughts that, like, didn't need to be captured and didn't need to be shared and would create this world in which... <laughs> people were telling too much about themselves. And that sounds kind of silly today, but I do think part of that is a natural adjustment, a period with a new technology and... We sort of have to learn a new set of rules yes. or assimilate it into our lives in different ways and we're kind of in the middle of that right well, now. Well,
1: the, the telephone was the classic example of that going right back into the early 20th century. You know, there very much were new codes. Anybody who's watched Downton Abbey knows that. I mean, this can be very important, say, you talk about new technology, the confessional television was like this wasn't it where the, the rise of the talk show tv which is certainly in the arab world for instance just as an example they're very wary of a lot of that. that that that's considered a very western phenomenon and they're quite they're quite unsure about it so i mean there can be voyeurism on display there can be wonderful um democratic sharing but it's not straightforward
3: yeah absolutely to some extent this is I mean, while the 21st century, what we're experiencing now, does feel unique just because of the unique nature of the way that social media works, I do think that this is a discussion and a sort of push and pull that we've been experiencing for a long time, like with the telephone, for instance, and definitely especially with the rise of talk shows on TV. Um, And it is sort of a similar structure of, you know, suddenly in your house, you can watch people share these things about their lives that you might not hear sort of strangers ever say before. It's just sort of a new kind of opening up of barriers and that was historically sort of scary to a lot of people. Um, And I do think I should also point out too just the extent to which so much of this idea of what oversharing means is connected to power. And, you know, certain people and especially women and women of color are obviously like the most targeted with this idea that the things that they share would be considered oversharing, this like this appropriateness over mm-hmm. who is allowed to share and and when it's crossing a line mm-hmm. is also sort of comes from like the power structures we all exist in.
1: Well, you do say that looking back at the history, that uh, oversharing, quotes, quotes, was largely excused in men, but in women, often seen as disgusting. <laughs> uh, and look, one thing before I let you go, the hilarious ruling or sort of sense that dreams are a gratuitous oversharing, which I have to <laughs> say I completely agree with, uh, it, it can be so tedious and people do decide that you've got to hear the detail of their dreams.
3: I know. Well, I mean, I opened this saying that a lot of the early etiquette manuals could feel out of step with the present, but I can really imagine that appearing in one today. (laughs)
1: Look, I think you're onto something. Thank you very much indeed, Michael, for joining us.
3: Thank you for taking the time.
1: And Michael Waters writes for The Atlantic, among other publications. And the piece that led to this interview is called The Decline of Etiquette and the Rise of Boundaries. Now, look, we have a couple of texts, um, some thoughtful ones, particularly after our earlier discussion about uh, the gender service in the UK. Uh, Professor Claire Wright uh, has said, Dear Geraldine, the correct term is gender affirmation surgery, not gender reassignment surgery. So thank you very much for that. And uh, a thoughtful one the Tavistock story reminds me of my family's experience with some specialist medical professionals in other areas of healthcare. We have noticed that the greater the area of specialisation, the less likely some specialists are to consider answers or diagnoses outside their field. As a result, there have been some misdiagnoses that are stressful and time-consuming and that person wished to be anonymous. And this is from um, a nurse The topic regarding gender and youth has bothered me greatly for the last few years. I'm a nurse who now and again works with a sexual health physician. We visit corrections together. Corrections facilities, in other words. It bothers me greatly how many young men go on hormone therapy inside corrections. Also in the community in my region, I would like to be anonymous though, I don't wish to identify myself. I really believe we need to slow down in this area. It terrifies me. Some people in later life remain happy with the gender transformation, yet many more may not. During our life, we all struggle with our identity or appearance. We should be focusing more on supporting young people who have struggles while at school, along with working in the area of of bullying. Um, so look, I'm sure that that has provoked quite a lot of thoughts and I very much appreciate it. And, and you know, you can always email us and go to our website and see how you can email us. And um, we'll, we'll take that very much, uh, take that very seriously. I just want to tell you also about uh, part two of a very good revision on the war in Ukraine, marking the first anniversary of that terrible war they're looking at the political story... Mm Because the invasion of Ukraine has really reshaped the political landscape in Europe. Finland and Sweden have applied to join NATO. Perceptions of Russia in Central Asia especially have changed. And the focus of Russia's foreign policy has also shifted. Vision will explore the political fallout from the conflict in Ukraine. And it was uh, very interesting to listen last week to the military fallout. This week, we are going to try to look actually at Russia's divide soul i don't know whether you did hear president vladimir putin's um, speech my goodness it was extraordinary it's that sense of uh, concern about the the west somehow undermining something central about um, about the russian soul so we're going to try to look at that uh, issue which has dominated them for about the last two to three hundred years and that's it for extra with me geraldine Doug. thank you for your company today And I do hope you can join us again next week. Bye-bye for now.
0: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.